Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, I'm Lydia Brown here with Carmen Baskoff, and we're the producers of Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. We're so glad to have you listening to this podcast, and we hope that you will support the work that we do on this program by giving us a call today. The number is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org. This podcast may be an important part of your routine, um, so think about the times uh whether you're on your commute or uh, on a run, all the times you listen to Where We Live and, and what that means to you. And if that's something you value, give us a call, 1-800-584-2788, or go online to wnpr.org donate. And thanks. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When you hear the term eating disorder, who do you think of first? Someone who eats too much? or someone who eats too little. Maybe you think it's an issue that affects only women. It may surprise you, an estimated 30 million Americans have struggled with an eating disorder at some point in their lives. That's according to the National Eating Disorders Association, or NIDA. It's also an issue that cuts across all ethnic backgrounds. Coming up, we'll hear from a Latina about when she developed an eating disorder and how she got help. We'll also hear from a Connecticut doctor about treatment programs in our state. Have you had an eating disorder or you know someone who has? We want to hear from you. You can join our conversation. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, we're going to learn more about eating disorders and the misconceptions that surround them. So joining us uh, by phone now is Claire Misko, CEO of the National Eating Disorders Association that's based in New York. Claire, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So I keep mentioning eating disorders, but how, how are they defined? What are we talking about exactly? Well, eating disorders are, first of all, a very serious public health issue. As you mentioned, 30 million Americans will struggle with an eating disorder at some point in their lives. And that includes 20 million women and 10 million men. Um, And so this is not just a women's issue. It's an issue that affects people of all ages, of all sizes, races, backgrounds. Um, And when we talk about eating disorders, we're really talking about a broad range of behaviors. Um, There are eating disorders that are restrictive, where people will severely restrict the, um, the amount of food that they eat. Um, that's considered to be um, the diagnosis of anorexia. Um, There's also bulimia, which is um, characterized by binging, eating large quantities of food. And um, and, and it's not just the the quantity of food, but it's the feeling of shame and embarrassment um, and the lack of control and then um, feeling the need to purge. And that can be done through vomiting, laxative abuse, we also hear from people who use exercise as a way of, you know, as a compensatory behavior. Um, and then there's binge eating disorder, which actually affects more people than anorexia and bulimia combined. And that's, again, characterized by that loss of control around eating. Um, often there's uh, secrecy around eating. And these are very complex illnesses. Um, we call them biopsychosocial. So, um, there's a lot of compelling evidence to show that some people are predisposed to developing eating disorders. Um, there's a neurobiological and genetic connection. 
Um, they're also closely linked to other psychological disorders. So many people with eating disorders are also struggling with anxiety, depression. Um, there's a strong link to trauma and substance use disorder. So, you know, the psychological piece is there. These are not choices. They're not fads. And then, of course, we live in a culture that glorifies, you know, perfection and um, thinness and now fitness. And there are so many confusing messages about health and wellness. So, you know, these are illnesses that are treatable, um, but they are very widespread. And there are so many people who are not diagnosed and not accessing help. That's important. That's an important point because we said an estimated 30 million Americans, but that number is likely higher because, as you said, uh, many people are undiagnosed. That's right. And that's one of the things we hear so often um, at NIDA. We, we operate a helpline and we get calls and contacts um, through our website and through our chat um, from people who have waited a very long time to reach out for help because they don't see themselves reflected in the mainstream stories that are told about eating disorders. So we hear things like, well, I'm not that underweight, or, you know, I don't fit the stereotypical picture. I'm not sure that, um, that I have an eating disorder. And yet they go on to describe behavior that is very much disordered eating. Um, so these stereotypes are real barriers for people to reach out for help. Uh, you mentioned culture earlier, and when we think about stereotypes, is it more common in our society to think about when we hear the term eating disorder, that this is something that affects uh, white women, white upper-class women, uh, versus, as you mentioned, uh, people from across uh, many different um, ethnic backgrounds? Yeah, unfortunately, that stereotype does still persist. Um, I've worked in the eating disorders field for over 20 years, and this has been a consistent challenge. Um, when most people hear the term eating disorder, unfortunately, they do um, think of a young, white, affluent, thin woman. And that just does not reflect the reality of who struggles. Um, eating disorders are a diverse issue. Um, we actually see similar rates of eating disorders among um, non-Hispanic whites, Hispanics, African-Americans, and Asians in the U.S., um, but people of color are significantly less likely to receive help for their eating disorder because of these stereotypes. And, um, you know, the language around eating disorders, the research around eating disorders, um, you know, has, has traditionally been done on um, white women. So we have a lot of work to do as far as um, confronting these stereotypes and making um, treatments and recovery accessible to everyone who deserves it. So, Claire, you said that you've been in this field for more than 20 years. Uh, now there is more attention on the fact that eating disorders impact uh, many different people from different backgrounds. We're going to be talking about that in just a little bit uh, with a, a Latina uh, who experienced an eating disorder and how she uh, sought out uh, treatment. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to know more about uh, the focus of NIDA in trying to bring awareness to this very diverse uh, issue and how uh, many different populations, how they can go about seeking help, where the gaps uh, exist, so to speak. Yeah, well, this is a big priority for us at NIDA, um, you know, recognizing these gaps and really encouraging people to, to seek help. Um, you know, 
<clears throat> we have uh, on our website a screening tool. Um, it's a free anonymous screener that anyone can take to get an indication of whether their behavior um, is um, potentially leading to or whether they are already actively struggling with an eating disorder. So um, we encourage everyone, um, if you have a concern, um, to go to our website at nationaleatingdisorders.org and take that screener. Um, as I mentioned, we also have a helpline. We have trained volunteers um, who can speak to anyone, um, whether it's yourself, you're concerned about yourself, or someone you care about. Um, we have connections to treatment and um, also just general support and education. Um, it's really important. These are very overwhelming, isolating illnesses. And so reaching out for help and finding a connection um, to treatment and talking to someone who understands is, is really critical. And, you know, for us as an organization, really busting through those stereotypes and those myths um, is so important. And, you know, we're starting to make progress. I think elevating the stories of those who don't fit that typical stereotypical picture is really important. Um, and making sure that, you know, as an organization, we're advancing research, we are advancing education and really talking about the diverse range of experiences of people with eating disorders. I wanted to ask you, Claire, when you say elevating uh, the voices and the people that have uh, not been um, paid attention to in the past, who are we talking about? Are we talking about men? Are we talking about people in the LGBTQ community? Yes, all, all of the above and, and more. Um, you know, again, these are illnesses that affect everyone. And um, we actually see um, higher rates of eating disorders in the LGBTQ population. Um, NIDA has worked closely with a number of organizations, including the Trevor Project, um, which is a crisis line for LGBTQ youth. Um, we really made a point this year with our National Eating Disorders Awareness Week campaign um, to seek out stories and um, have people um, men, women, people of all sizes. That's another big myth about eating disorders that, you know, everyone with an eating disorder is thin. Um, that is absolutely not true. So we want to talk about um, how these illnesses present in, in, in all people and um, people of different ethnic backgrounds and races as well. Um, you know, we, we often hear, as I said, from people who do not see themselves in the stories that are told about eating disorders. And we really need to change that. And that's a, a, a big focus for our organization. Um, we know that people, when they hear um, from others who have a similar experience, um, it can be really, really powerful. And um, it can help you to feel less alone. Um, these are illnesses that are shrouded in shame and secrecy. So we want people of all backgrounds um, to come forward and, and share their stories and understand that their experience matters and that their struggle is valid. Uh, Katie's calling from stores. Katie, uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Um, I just wanted to comment and say that you know I really appreciate this segment, and I'm someone who struggled um, in a not typical body with an eating disorder for you know over 10 years, and. A lot of people didn't recognize it because I don't live in a, a small body and people just were sort of uh, congratulating me on the weight loss that was happening or the, you know, restriction that was happening, like calling it willpower and calling the overexercise behaviors as, you know, strong and a lot of that stuff was celebrated for most of my life. So, you know, I never really was diagnosed until I was almost 30. And it's just very eye-opening to see, you know, the different experiences and the different types of bodies and 
the different types of stories that people have that struggle with eating disorder. Well, thank you, Katie, uh, for your call. Uh, Claire, you mentioned earlier that there are many factors in play when someone develops an eating disorder. It's not as simple as saying, well, uh, maybe put a little more on your plate, put a little less on your plate. Yeah, again, these are very, very complex illnesses. And, um, you know, while there often is a, a, you know, an obsession around food, the real root of the eating disorder is much deeper than that. Um, so you can't, you, while you do need to learn how to have a healthier relationship with food, there are also, um, you know, other underlying issues. And, you know, as I said, there's a strong connection to depression and anxiety, um, other psychological issues. And that's why treatment really needs to be comprehensive. So you can't just fix um, what's on the plate or, um, you know, address the surface behavior. That's part of it. But you really need um, that comprehensive treatment that includes the psychological piece, the counseling. Um, You know, oftentimes people with eating disorders can really benefit from nutritional counseling. And of course, there's the, you know, the medical component as well. These are very dangerous illnesses um, that that can be life-threatening. So, you know, you need to address the, the medical issues as well. So um, it's important if you're struggling or you're concerned about someone who might be um, to reach out for help. Early intervention makes a huge difference um, in the treatment outcomes. So, you know, even if you're um, starting to be concerned, you know, reaching out early is very important. I'm curious, just uh, real quick, when we think about uh, major health, public health issues that impact us in this country, often we think about obesity, um, and there are federal dollars that are in play for research. But I'm just curious in terms of what kind of dollars are out there, Claire, to look specifically at individuals um, suffering from uh, bulimia and other eating disorders? Well, eating disorders are um, very underfunded. Um, When you look at um, other mental health disorders, um, eating disorders receive less than a dollar per person affected. Um, So this is something that that NIDA is working on um, in terms of advancing federal funding for research. Um, We also fund research, and, you know, we're really making an effort to fund Um, researchers who are looking at different communities um, so that we can get a better understanding of these illnesses. Um, We really need more research so that we can advance treatments. Um, We can better understand how to disseminate treatments into different communities um, where we know there's a need. Um, And, you know, we need also to really focus on, you know, prevention efforts and early intervention efforts. So, you know, when we talk about the, the amount of research dollars that are going to eating disorders right now, we need a lot more. Um, and we need to really focus on expanding um, the research that we that we do have so that we can better understand how these illnesses are affecting different populations. Claire Misko, again, is CEO of the National Eating Disorders Association. Claire, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll be joined by a Connecticut doctor to talk about treatment. A young woman will also share her story about growing up in a Latino family and how culture and ethnicity can impact when someone receives help for an eating disorder. And we want to hear from you. Have you received treatment for an eating disorder or has a loved one? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. 
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from a national nonprofit that focuses on how to help Americans with eating disorders and their families. Is this something you've experienced at some point in your life? Your spouse? Maybe your child? You can join us, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, We talked about how this condition affects a wide range of people, no matter their gender or race. But in our society, it's common to think of it as an issue that may impact only white heterosexual women. But eating disorders cut across all ethnicities, including Latino and black communities. A recent NPR story reported binge eating disorders are high among these populations. Uh, Joining us now uh, with more, uh, first I want to welcome into the studio uh, Dr. Sarah Niego, psychiatrist and service chief of the Eating Disorders Program at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut. Dr. Niego, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. And we're happy that you're here. Uh, for our listeners who have questions, Dr. Niego is here to answer those for you. Oh, I first wanted to turn to a, a personal story. Uh, Anna E. Ortega is joining us uh, from a studio in Portland, Oregon. She's Latina and also has recovered from an eating disorder. Anna E., welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. So tell us uh, when you first developed uh, an eating disorder and what was going on in your life at the time. Yeah. So Claire actually touched on a couple of things that either supported or affected my own treatment of an eating disorder. But before I get into that, I grew up in a very traditional Mexican household. Both of my parents immigrated to the U.S. when I was one. And to this day, they speak very little English. Um, I grew up dancing and my eating disorder started surfacing when I was about, I was a preteen slash early teenager. Um, I became hyper aware of the numbers, hyper aware of my body image. And I think my dad had a a very difficult time navigating the challenges of raising a teenage daughter. And I began dieting in secrecy. And of course, like any eating disorder, my, my focus became an obsession, both with food and numbers. And also, I was terrified of food and numbers. So it, it really exploded. And something that really caught my attention when Claire was talking was that I wasn't actually diagnosed until when I was 15 years of age. Um, so it had been two, two plus years of dieting and this eating disorder developing. You said you were dieting, so were you thinking that you were too heavy at the time? I was. I, I Again, with the dancing background, numbers and body image was a big center of attention. And I I thought that I was bigger than I was. I, I, I was afraid of how I looked. And what about um, how your parents responded to you? You mentioned that uh, they immigrated here from Mexico. What did they say to you uh, when they saw your weight fluctuating? Well, I think at the time, eating disorders, this was almost 20 years ago, the eating disorders weren't really understood or weren't really talked about. And especially in the Latino culture, they we didn't talk about our feelings. We didn't talk about mental health. And so I think that when they started noticing something was off, they teased me about it instead of acknowledging it and talking to me about their concerns. So it only exacerbated the the issue. When you say uh, tease, what do you mean? Did they call you uh, fat? Yes. yes, they did. So my dad would say, "Estás gorda," or "Why are you focusing so much on on the dancing or the the working out?" And and in Spanish, "gorda gordita" it's a term of endearment. But I think that the teasing and it didn't have malicious intent. But once. I heard it over and over. Um, it, it really started to become internalized. Mm-hmm. 
I mentioned that we have a psychiatrist in studio, Dr. Sarah Niego. Um, I was curious if you could just respond a little to uh, what NAE has been saying, because I was thinking back when I went through puberty, like many of us, our weight does kind of fluctuate. And I'm just curious, is that a, a common time for especially girls uh, to have, start to think about what am I, maybe I'm too heavy and what should I do about it? Absolutely. And not just especially girls. We know now it, it we see a lot of, of it in men. Um, but Anna, your story is really, really a cl- classic story for um, people who develop eating disorders. It does tend to start in, around puberty for a lot of reasons. Your body is changing, your brain is changing, um, and and you're confronted with um, all kinds of issues about who you are and and who and and how to get people to connect with you. So that's a really common story. What what you're talking about is that. What didn't happen was that it was identified in your um, in your family. That's actually not that uncommon either. Um, and then we know there's that added layer of cultural factors that um, came into play for you. I applaud you for coming forward, and uh, okay. I, I really applaud the champions of the National Eating Disorder Association for raising awareness and lowering stigma, so mm-hmm. people like you can come out eventually and, and acknowledge that they have a, a issue that needs some attention. I brought up uh, puberty and uh, especially among girls because we know in our culture there is this ideal of what is attractive, mm-hmm. uh, how slim you must be. And so NAE, uh, as being in the Latino uh, community, uh, what was the, what did, what did the, what did beauty look like at the time? And then how did you kind of reconcile that with what was going on with your body? <laughs> well, that was a very confusing time for me. <laughs> I, I remember having this pressure to look a certain way to to fit into certain um, dresses for for the dancing part of it. But also, what I was seeing in the media and my, my my the Spanish TV that I that I had at home, it was curved. So it was conflicting messages. It was very hard to uphold. <laughs> So you said at 15 you were diagnosed. Uh, walk us through that moment, and was it difficult, um, again, uh, to for your parents to understand what was going on because of the language barrier? Absolutely. I So I had a health scare um, around 15, and that was really what took me into the doctor's office. And at that point, I was officially diagnosed. It had gone on for two years or so where I had developed these behaviors and the language was such an issue. I I was left to interpret for my family and I would not advise letting an eating disorder a patient to interpret to their parents and give them the decisions or give them the options of treatment because I really chose to I kind of mislead what my options were or how I was being um, really the extent of my disease. And so language was an issue. Information on eating disorders, especially in Spanish, was also an issue. And my parents, they really, I think, were concerned, but they didn't know how to express it and they didn't know how to be involved. And I don't think that the professionals knew either on how to incorporate them. Um, And so there was a lot of shame and it, it was just just eat uh, for my parents. Just eat, get better. And it, it was a difficult time. 
Uh, this is where we live. Uh, today we're talking about eating disorders. Uh, with us from a studio in Portland, Oregon is Anna E. Ortega. Uh, she's Latina and also has recovered from an eating disorder. Uh, with us in studio is Dr. Sarah Niego, a psychiatrist and service chief of the Eating Disorders Program at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut. Uh, Anna E., you mentioned that um, you were referred to treatment. So what exactly were those treatment options? And when did you feel finally that you were on a path to recovery? Yeah, so when I was a teenager, I was referred to inpatient and group therapy and the whole comprehensive treatment. I only chose to do certain parts of it, and I wish that I would have done it a little bit different, but I didn't know how at the time. And so when I started group therapy, I really felt isolated. I could connect with my peers um, because of the eating disorder and the struggles that I was facing, but I could not relate in terms of family involvement and family support and how uh, just our backgrounds. And so that made it extremely difficult for my treatment to and recovery to be successful. And I graduated from high school, went on to college and continued to struggle with an eating disorder. And when I was in my early 20s, I decided to go back to treatment. And I, I had continued therapy in some form or another, but I gave it another shot. And I this time incorporated who I wanted to be there, who could be able to support me, who who was able to know about understanding disorders, educate themselves, know more about them, speak English, and be involved during uh, the group sessions, the family sessions. And so that included my godmother and friends, and that made a huge difference. Also, Nita, I, I discovered them through Jenny Schaefer, and Nita has just so much support, such a great community. Um, and now I'm really, really fortunate to have been able to work with Nita to provide resources and develop resources in Spanish, and I think that's going to help future generations. You mentioned Nita a couple times. This was uh, the guest that we had for the first part of the show, uh, Claire Misco, who's CEO of the National Eating Disorders Association, or Nita, and we'll uh, tweet out links uh, to that organization uh, at where we live. Uh, when you were diagnosed in your teenage years, was it your father's insurance uh, plan that covered your treatment, and was that a barrier at all? I was so lucky that I did have health insurance uh, for the treatment of it. I, I mean, receiving treatment for an eating disorder with insurance is hard enough. So I can't even imagine families who don't have health insurance. Um, Dr. Niego is with us again uh, from Silver Hill Hospital. Uh, so now, and this is like what she was saying about 15, 20 years ago when she was first diagnosed, is it common for insurance companies to cover treatment for this wide range of eating disorders? It's more common. You know, I find myself fighting the insurance companies to cover treatment, but with the 1996 uh, passing of the Mental Health Parity Act, there is more of an argument that eating disorders really deserve the same health care dollars as any other medical condition. Um, and so there's some, there is something there, but there's still a lot of stigma on the, well, it's not really stigma on the insurance company front. It's about the bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, and I, I I think you've gone through quite a journey. I'm glad that you have now become more of a voice for people not fully recovered yet. But yeah, insurance does cover. It's just still kind of a fight. So you're talking about maybe uh, length of treatment that they would pay for. If, you're if your treatment is covered by insurance, it's length of treatment. It's um, you know the insurance company sending people letters that say you're not we're not authorizing because of, you're not underweight. They say things like that that kind of 
hit right where it hurts for people in recovery. Um, so th- there's kind of a, a really a need for education on all fronts. Also, I wanted to mention the, the doctor visits that um, a lot of people, there's a lot of shame. We know that in terms of um, shedding any light on the fact that you're struggling with eating disorder. And then a lot of people avoid going to, to the doctor because of they don't want to get on the scale. They don't want to hear you need to lose weight or they don't want to have to explain. So they just hide it. They don't say anything. And that also gets in the way of people being identified as in need of help. Phil's calling from Hartford. Phil, go ahead. Oh, hi. Good morning. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I was hoping to address what the guest just spoke about. Um, there is, uh, I, I hate to say this, but my beautiful, wonderful scholar, athlete daughter passed away at 17 from an eating disorder not that long ago. I'm so and, sorry. Uh, we're still sort of wondering, you know, everything, but... Uh, there is an initiative now in the Connecticut legislature to um, enforce parity laws. Um, I like to say that parity is the parity um, because the laws are largely unenforced. And with our daughter, we fought every situation that your guest has referred to. Length of stay, physical indicators of a mental illness, everything constantly being rejected from a Connecticut-based health insurer who uh, would make clerical errors, would make uh, coverage, uh, poor determinations, uh, endless appeals. I'm very glad to say that we had the resources to pay the checks and fight, but many people don't, and they depend upon parity laws. I do have to say that Congressman Larson has been incredibly supportive, and Nita has worked with Congressman Larson on this issue, but it's time. I mean, the court decision that came down in California yesterday or a federal judge just let United Healthcare have it from the bench about their um, their lapses with regard to parity, their seemingly crazy coverage determinations, and he just let go. And I can't really blame the guy. It is very hard. We treat physical illness. It's covered by health insurance. We have parity laws at the federal level. We have parity laws at the Connecticut level. And I make a plea to the incoming insurance commissioner, Andrew Mays, who's just been appointed, who is an experienced regulator and an outstanding person, to take on this cause. And thank you. We, thank you, Phil, for sharing a little bit of your story. Again, I'm sorry to hear about the loss of your daughter, but it's good to know that there is this bill before the Connecticut General Assembly. Dr. Yeah, Niega. Yeah. You know, um, we... we engage with families all the time in fighting insurance companies. It does take that. You know, I I call families and I say, you need to get in. We need to call any lawyer you know, any your own insurance company needs to know you're fighting this. It it takes a village and and it does take um, a family eating disorders, our family issues too. So we all have to kind of work together to to push for the coverage and the care that people really need. You've also, um, Phil, you've highlighted a really important piece of this, which is eating disorders are, are extremely dangerous, high mortality conditions. They are, you know, treatable. There is hope. And it also, we we are losing people. We're losing young people. Years of life are lost to eating disorders. And it is so important for insurance companies and, and physicians and everybody to kind of realize that. I wanted to take another call, Matt, from Middletown. Matt, go ahead. Hi, how's it going? I've had a coworker who had clear eating disorder problems, 
But whenever we would try and talk about it, you know, she didn't want to hear it. She would shut us down. And it was really hard to, to help this person. So I'm curious if you have advice on how to reach those people who really don't want to hear um, your concerns. That is one of the hardest things that is really hard. And one thing that is great about the National Eating Disorder Association, actually, is that they, they have a whole toolkit, a whole packet of how to talk to somebody, how, what words are helpful, what words are usually not helpful. So you can g- get guidance from the National Eating Disorder Association. You know, we talk about it in our program at Silver Hill. We have people, we have families in, we're coaching them on how to confront or express concern. So um, yeah, there's a lot of help out there. I wanted to get the perspective of Anna E. Ortega also with us from a studio in Portland, Oregon, um, who um, is recovered from an eating disorder. Uh, Matt's question again, asking you know, if you know someone um, who's dealing with this, uh, how do you talk about it and be sensitive without saying the wrong thing? Yeah, that is such a great question. And it took me back to when I was suffering and the the concern that I that I received from my family and, and my godmother specifically and how much I shut it down because I was not in a space to to hear it to acknowledge that I was suffering I think just sharing that you are concerned and referring to the Nita toolkit that was just mentioned I, I think that's a great resource and uh, for me it wasn't necessarily hearing the the specific concerns it was just more so i see that you are struggling or i i see i i i see that you you need some help this is where we live i'm lucy nalpathanchel Anna E. Ortega is Latina and has recovered from an eating disorder. She joins us from a studio at Digital One in Portland, Oregon. Also with us, Dr. Sarah Niego, psychiatrist and service chief of the Eating Disorders Program at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut. After the break, we'll continue our conversation. But first, it's Connecticut Public Radio's spring fundraising campaign. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how you can support original local programs like Where We Live. Hi, I'm Carmen Baskoff here with Lydia Brown. We're the producers of Where We Live. Thanks for joining us today and listening to Where We Live, the podcast. It does take a lot of work, as Lydia and I both know, to put together a show like this with so many different voices and and coming to you be a part of supporting that. The number to call 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org slash donate. We are so happy to have you listening to this podcast. We found that oftentimes people don't even realize that it exists. They just think that we (laughs) broadcast between 9 and 10 a.m. and 7 and 8 p.m. But the reality is that you can go online and listen at any time of day at your convenience. It's there for you, and we hope that you'll support it as well. Again, that number, 1-800-584-2788, 1-800-584-2788. Go online to wnpr.org. It's quick, it's easy, it's secure, and thank you so much in advance. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning more about eating disorders today, and you can join us. Uh, Gina's calling from Brantford. Gina, go ahead. Hello. Yes, I am an eating disorder specialist. I am credentialed. I've worked for about 24, five years here in Connecticut. And I do know Sarah Diego, Dr. Diego. Hi, Gina. Um, Hi. (laughs) I did want to stress everything is said that has been said is so important. And even Katie, who called in, her words were just so helpful in letting people understand how each individual works. My experience with eating disorders focuses on body image, as well as eating disorders in terms of all of the components, the biological, psychosocial, genetic, 
body image piece has been researched, and even in Connecticut we have great researchers who have written books. Thomas Cash and Krasnitsky have written a book on body image, Dr. Margot Main. And there's new research in the embodiment of how body image healing needs to occur. So my point is, and what their point is, is that if this is not addressed, we will have reoccurrence and relapses. The body needs to heal, and for an eating disorder to heal, the body image needs to heal. Thank you, Gina, for your call. Dr. Niego, so talk a little bit about um, the I, this uh, uh, issue of relapse because of, of, of body image fluctuating and how we think about yeah. ourselves. Well, relapse rates are unfortunately not uncommon, you know, pretty high in eating disorders. And there is that lingering piece that Gina is talking about. Body image is the kind of the last, the eating disorder mind around body shape and weight is one of the last things to go. And I, and I think you're right, Gina, that if it's not, if that work isn't done, if it's not addressed and there's not some acceptance and peace made with the body, you're, you're definitely at risk of, of relapse. It'll probably always be your Achilles heel, and then in times of stress, likely to crop back up. Ana E. Ortega is still with us from uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, earlier, Ana E., you talked about um, you know the fact that there, when you were um, going through uh, your eating disorder and trying to find treatment, um, you know the the problem of not there not being a lot of diversity, whether it's the people around you at the group therapy or the people who are responding and and caring for you. And so, can you talk a little bit more about some of the barriers that still exist today, so that when we talk about eating disorders, uh, we're able to reach. Uh, people from many different backgrounds and, and not just thinking about these misconceptions that we have of, of who suffers from it and who doesn't? Yeah, well, I think it's important to keep in mind that eating disorders don't discriminate. They, they affect anyone and everyone. And one thing that I am really grateful for is that there is more awareness around that, but we still need to continue the conversation. And I think that one of my my dreams now as I reflect on my time or during my time of illness is going to, and I'm not sure what it looks like now, but if I could go back and if I would have met someone who looked like me or understood a little bit more about my background, that would have been extremely helpful. It, it would have brought a little bit of calmness around the issue. So I, I think just acknowledging that it is different and having that awareness that it is different for everyone. Dr. Niego, we mentioned that you're from Silver Hill Hospital, uh, but for listeners throughout our state, what are the treatment options available here? Thank goodness there's there are more. When I first started um, as a a physician or psychiatrist treating eating disorders in Connecticut, there was very little out there. And um, in the last, I'd say, eight years or so, there's been a burgeoning of treatment options. I think, you know, again, as people are coming forward, as it's, it's being identified as a need, more insurance companies at least acknowledging the need to cover, um, there's there are partial hospital programs. There's intensive outpatient. There's an inpatient eating disorder program in Connecticut. The, the one in Connecticut, thank goodness, we, we used to send people off to Massachusetts. We have a residential program at Silver Hill, so people come, they live with us, and they eat with us, and, you know, we're one of, of many, and thank, I'm really thankful for that. 
And how do you dr- uh, address the diversity question, uh, whether yeah. it's the clinicians at Silver Hill Hospital or are there programs that are really looking mm-hmm. into eating disorders within the Latino and black uh, populations, even the Native American populations we have in the state? Absolutely. I mean, we have people from all over the world at our, our program at Silver Hill. So we've got you know people from Turkey, Canada, everywhere. So that there, they, there's just a kind of natural diversity in that regard. In terms of staffing, we do have a um, gen, we have a um, LGBTQ person in, on our staff. So, uh, and a lot of our people do ha- are in the trans kind of under that umbrella. And um, so she runs groups, her LGBTQ groups for our program and for the rest of the hospital as well. So I think in that, on that front, um, we have a staff member who meets them where they are. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's always better to have staff that, can, that are more diverse. When we think about the state of Connecticut, we know there's many different mm-hmm. uh, disparities. But uh, for a residents who are living uh, in poverty or within a certain income level, um, you know, how who's reaching out to them uh, to even see if they um, to be able to diagnose them or see what the symptoms are? Uh, I was looking at a statistic from NIDA that uh, people of color with self-acknowledged eating and weight concerns were significantly less likely than white uh, patients to have been asked by a doctor yes, about eating disorder true. symptoms. So what do we do about that? 17% as compared to 40% for non-white Hispanics, but black people in general don't get um, identified as in need of help. Um, yeah, we're just going to have to keep raising awareness and, and working with with the front lines in terms of the medical community and and um, and with this information, hopefully things will happen. It's an ongoing challenge. So the need for more bilingual professionals, researchers also. Absolutely. And and I'm also a member. I, I'm a member of NIDA, and I'm a member of the International Academy for Eating Disorders. So we're, I mean, I have this dream of opening a center in Spain. There, There's a lot of work to be done out there. Uh, Anna Ortega is also with us from Portland, Oregon. Um, you know, we heard about this importance of raising awareness that eating disorders affect people from many diverse backgrounds. Um, and I'm curious, with with efforts through NIDA, there's also the Binge Eating Disorder mm-hmm. Association. I believe they're now working together, BETA, mm-hmm. uh, BETA uh, to help uh, especially people of color. Um, are you feeling more optimistic uh, now in your late 20s, early 30s than you than you were in, in your teens. I am. It's just it's so such an honor to be able to talk about this. And I think the more we talk about it, the more awareness, the more conversations that we can have around the difficulties and also how to overcome those difficulties. So I am very excited. And Dr. Niego, uh, for our listeners who want to know more about the program that uh, you uh, work with, uh, where can they go? Sure. I will give you a number. So the Silver Hill Hospital Eating Disorder Program can be reached by calling um, 866-542-4455, and, they, and the person who answers can help walk you through how to get some help from us. Again, I want to thank uh, our doctor uh, here with us in studio, Dr. Sarah Niego, the psychiatrist and service chief of the Eating Disorders Program at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut. Uh, thank you, Dr. Niego. Thank you so much for having me, helping me be a part of this. And Anna E. Ortega, a Latina who has recovered from an eating disorder, she joined us today from the studio uh, 
digital one in Portland, Oregon. And it's not easy to talk about uh, personal stories. Uh, again, you, you do this because you want to reach more people to help them find help that you maybe didn't get early enough. Yeah, I, I just want to say that recovery is so worth it. And to not give up, it, it does get better. It can get better. Annie, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Uh, thanks to WMPR intern Seth Blair on the phones. Katie Tularski was on our technical uh, board uh, making sure that you could hear us today. Uh, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, check out our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. For more information about today's show, for uh, links uh, to some of the treatment programs and other uh, information uh, to help you. Thanks again for listening.